You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety, and comedy performers. It's the 14th of January, week. Valentine's Day. No, you're a month ahead. It's the 14th of February, Valentine's Day. Uh, have you got all your stuff ready already? Hmm? You got the all Valentine's your... Day? I thought we were doing the Valentine's Day. No, you're a month ahead. You're such a romantic. Mm, perhaps. Too romantic. It's the 14th of January, we're coming Valentine's to you. Day. We're coming to you from Walthamstow, the home of people who make and create and welcome London Borough of Culture. It's London Borough of Culture. Welcome to Talking Tricks, podcast presented by us, Kane and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. So this is us, we're here. And we've got one heck of an episode this week. So good, in fact. We're going to get straight into it. We are going to get straight into it. We're going to get straight into it with Steve Delanow. No magician in the world has ever won as many awards. Well, in the UK. No magician in the UK has won as many awards. No magician in the UK has ever won as many awards as Steve Della, And we're getting in there with him right now. Steve Della, one of our own. Shropshire born, Shropshire bred. Steve Della joins us now on Talking Tricks. Joining us now on Talking Tricks is Steve Della, very interesting magician, very exciting career to talk about. And most of it, I've kind of followed along because I met Steve when I was about 15 at the Shropshire Magic Society. So I think the best way to kick off is tell us about those years, those wasted years before you met us. (laughs) Because when I met you, you were a, a young magician competing in local competitions and we'll talk about all the competitions you've uh, entered and won in a little bit but I suppose the best way to start is let's talk about your starting magic. Well first of all thank you for having me it's nice to be here. I started magic when I was about three and a half years old. It was the story that a lot of people have basically my uncle who wasn't a magician but he could do one magic trick and that was basically the French drop and pulling the coin from behind your ear. As cliche as it sounds it was good enough to get me interested. So then for birthdays and Christmases Uh, I asked my parents for magic kits, they obliged. Um, My very first kit was actually the Houdini magic set, uh, which came with a top hat, so of course I looked rather dapper as a three and a half year old wearing that. And then when I I practiced and learnt all those, and then when I was four years old, I did my first show at Playgroup. And so that's, that's how I got going. And then birthdays and Christmases, more and more magic sets, advanced all the way through to a Paul Daniels set. From Paul Daniels, I advanced through to Marvin's Magic. And then after Marvin's Magic, we found Magic by Post. And after that, we found the wonderful shop Alakazam. Who were some of your early inspirations or magicians that you kind of remember in those kind of early years as as striking out at you and inspiring you? Well, the only real one that was accessible was Paul Daniels to me at the time and and of course Wayne Dobson as well absolutely fantastic we had the cream of the crop on TV at this at this stage it was it was a good time to be young and wanting to be a magician because you had idols that you could easily look up to so playgroup magic shows when did things start taking and no disservice to the playgroup <laughs> magic shows but when did things uh, start to take a bit more of a, a professional direction i was actually very young still because whilst i was learning magic i had a friend of mine so i went to school with his daughter or one of his three daughters, and his name was Lawrence. And Great name. <laughs> Great name, indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lawrence Gale, and he, with a gentleman called Bob Quantock, used to go out and do shows as clowns, right? But they were kind of adult 
comedy clowns, okay? The kind of clowns you'd hire for a, like a hen party. Anyway, they, they were quite notorious in the local area for, for having this act. And I saw them once and I just decided then, I love the magic, but I'd really like to be a clown. Okay, so they trained me up, they did my makeup, and I started doing proper shows with them. I mean, I was about about seven or eight years old, and I was doing shows, for example, I did uh, Oaken Gates Theatre, I was on stage doing, my, cl my clown name was Ringo, by the way, um, and I was doing basically really simple magic, but dressed as a clown, and this was um, a command performance for the mayor of Oaken Gates, and so that was my first like bit into the limelight and it was my first paid performance I would say and then things built from there obviously before I got to a stage where I was charging any real money we we got into well I managed to join the Shropshire Magical Society which is of course where we all met I'd always grown up knowing one magician which was my granddad of course and, wonderful and then when we went to the Shropshire Magic Society we met lots of magicians was that kind of the first time you'd met loads of other magicians or were you kind of already part of the magic circles youth club at that point uh, at that point no i wasn't the, the the very first club that i did join was shropshire magical society um and that came about in a really fun way my dad had taken me to see Paul Daniels' one-man show. Um, I'd seen Paul Daniels' stage show about twice before this, but this was his one-man, kind of like an audience with Paul Daniels. And you got to write questions on bits of paper and put them at the front of the stage. And the second half of his show, after he'd done the magic, would be answering questions. And I had said something along the lines of, how would I become a professional magician? You know, some, something that you would actually take months to figure out. But um, he, he actually read it out loud. He got me to stand up. And he said, the best thing you can do is join a local magic society. And then he pointed to Jeff Ray, who was also in the audience for the, uh, with his wife, Molly. And he said to me, go and see this gentleman, Jeff Ray, one of my best friends. Go and see him at the end of the show and he'll tell you all about his wonderful magic society. And that was it. I, I basically came along to the next one. What were some of the things that you began to learn when you met people like Jeff? Did that kind of... I wonder at that point, was it very much sort of like card tricks and coin tricks and then they were like, okay, here's this whole world with dealers and gimmicks and things like that. Um, how did things change when you started meeting all these magicians? And second question, probably even a bigger one, what impact did Jeff have on your career? Jeff had a massive impact. I'll start there because because he really, really did. I, he actually links in with the what did I then learn bit because seeing Jeff perform things like his spellbound routine or his amazing cups and balls, which also inspired me to do my cups and balls act, and just meeting other magicians that could, were doing different magic with lots of different props. For example, now was the time that I started seeing silk magic being done. And uh, even though not so popular today, but I was seeing people doing cigarette moves and, and stuff like that, and I saw thimbles, and this this was all magic that you didn't really know about if you just had a book on card tricks, or if so far you'd just been doing Marvin's Magic, and well, I would say, I'd say by the time I joined the club, I was a little more advanced than that, but most of what I was doing was card stuff. But yeah, see, seeing Jeff, everything he did was super smooth. Um, and I, I come back to his spellbound routine because it's honestly one of the best coin routines I think I've ever seen. Me and Jeff became good friends over the years, and he even helped me with uh, with my act, which went on to win Young Magician of the Year. So, yeah, I was going to say I know anyone that knows Jeff will know that Jeff's very much um, 
all about competing and he, he loves yeah. magic competitions and obviously grandson and Marcus and other people that yeah. have been influenced by Jeff. So was the first major competition that, that you entered and won the Young Magician of the Year or was there other bits before then? There was other bits before then. So I think, so my very first Magic Award was actually the uh, Newcomers Award at the Shropshire Magical Society. After that, I then, I think I won their close-up and I don't think I ever won their stage. But if we're talking major, like more national awards, um, before Young Magician of the Year, I had actually won the IBM close-up competition. I think I was 16 when I won that, so I was the youngest person to have ever ever won it. But the year previous to that, when I was about 15, I think I'd come second or third in that same competition. So that was setting me up for, for competitions. The other thing is, when I haven't won a competition, it's never put me off. And I don't mind entering competitions even to this day where I will go into it thinking, you know, I probably won't win in all reality because I don't, I don't put as much effort in as I used to. But yeah, those so those came before Young Magician of the Year. Well, the, the time that I won it because obviously I was, I was in the final the two years previous as well. Robbed by Paul Debeck, was it that year? I was. No. <laughs> With his silly doves and his blur <laughs> coat. Oh, no, I tell you what, if, if anyone deserved to win it, it was Paul that year. I didn't even get placed. That's how bad my act was at that time. But it was nice to have been in the final. But yeah, the Young Magician, it, it kind of sets people up in a way because you've obviously got the amazing prize of automatic entry into the magic circle. It opens doors. You get to do a lot of magic dinners. You get to work conventions. And it kind of just lifts your career a little bit. So it was fun to win that one. I want to talk about the lifts that winning the Young Magician of the Year gave your career. But let's kind of diving on that that whole competition in the year that you won it then yeah. before we go into that what did your act look like at that point when i was rehearsing for the 2005 one the act was just really not as polished as it needed to be i was going through it thinking oh i've got an act that may come second or may come third um but it just wasn't polished enough so I, I had help with it. First of all, I went to Jeff Ray. Jeff Ray helped me out. He helped improve my card manipulations because, my God, if there's one thing that man does well, it's card manipulations, as well as his coins, his canes, his doves. It's absolutely fantastic. I just had to smoothen everything. So him and Molly helped with that. Um, I also went to see uh, Colin Rose and Sharon. So they helped me as well. And also uh, Jeremy, uh, who's sadly no longer with us, and Cheryl from Practical Magic. All great influences there. Mm. So the, the night that you won it, can you, <clears throat> excuse me, who else was, was in that, that final of the Young Magician of the Year that year? Because I, I always think it's great to kind of have a look and see who else was, was <laughs> there and who was kind of coming up at that point. It was actually a really, really fantastic final. Darren McDonald was, was in there. He came second, I believe. A trio called which went under the name Henry Lewis. Um, they came third, I was first, but notably as well was uh, Jonathan Shotton was in it, and uh, James Moore as well. Oh, wow, so yeah, a, a vintage year. Yeah. So what were some of the things that uh, winning the Young Magician of the Year opened up for you? Mainly it was um, conventions and things like that. So the beauty of, of being 
placed first in the year 2005 was that they kept calling it the centenary Young Magician of the Year. Okay, and the nice thing about that is the Magic Circle were doing their centenary convention. They're like celebration. And because of that, I was in the Stars of the Future show. And of course, I was headlining it, which, which just gave me some notoriety. It meant that I got into the program with a photo. It meant that when they wrote the history book on the Magic Circle, that I've got a picture in there saying that... Uh, saying that I won it. It opened doors. So after I'd performed at the centenary celebration, there was a woman there, I can't quite remember her name, but she was a very nice lady, and she was managing Norbert Ferrer, uh, who's a fantastic, fantastic magician, former world champion. And she basically approached me and said, how do you fancy flying to Paris and being on a TV show? I was like, oh, that, yeah, that sounds, <laughs> sounds rather good, actually. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll give that a go. I was like... Oh, we haven't even talked money or anything. So anyway, that happened later on. And it turned out the show was Le Plus Grand Cabaret du Monde. And when I spoke to the producers, it turned out that I was, in the 40-year history of the show, I was the first magician from Britain to ever be invited on. And it, it's an amazing show that I, and probably I would imagine most listeners watching the same way, that you see acts and clips on, on YouTube and people sharing yeah. it on Facebook. Um, it seems an amazing show. What was that experience like for you? Foreign foreign country, still quite young. Uh, it's not like, is it live TV or is it at least pre-recorded for live? It's pre-recorded for live. So it, firstly, it was a fantastic experience. Um, the way I was treated was way better than any of the TV I've done in this country. So there, there was a lovely fee. Okay, which I won't mention, but it was a good fee. There was also flights were included, a chauffeur from the airport to the hotel. Uh, and the hotel was on the site of, of the TV studio as well, which was very cool. Um, so they also gave me my own private translator. I had a dressing room at the studio and they made sure that all the acts got together and that basically everything was paid for. My bar bill was paid for, my food was paid for, I got my translator, as I said, I had a chauffeur to and from parts of the studio. It was just a really, really good experience. And at, at this point then, is your kind of the majority of the work that you're doing, is it, uh, you know, short kind of stayed spots or are you doing longer evening shows for, you know, um, various cabarets and uh, other clients or are you kind of well into it with, with close-up at this point or is it kind of are you in it doing all sorts of things or was there kind of one area that you were focusing on at this point? Um, I was really enjoying doing the Manip Act um, but I realised that the well I, I thought at the time there wasn't going to be any money in doing that because I, I knew by now that I wanted to be a full-time magician so it's it's going from a hobby to a business at this point and so I had to be really realistic and no one's going to pay you you know 500 quid to do eight minutes you know that's the problem so basically at this point whilst I was enjoying doing the manipulation act and and I always think stage performers get a better a better representation than close-up they just they just I don't know, they feel more like a star, okay, so if you're on stage and things. Um, but I started having to do close-up, and I found that close-up was a lot harder, but it, there, were mu there were much more gigs, basically. So the gigging was close-up, and then it was magic conventions and magic dinners and things that I was doing the Manip Act for. Having watched you work and do close-up quite a few times, what I think is very interesting... And 
kind of a similar style, but you're much more regimented than me and Ed, <laughs> I think, is Ed and I like to do the same routine to each table, mm. and we kind of see it as this is our best 10 minutes, yeah. maybe. When you're kind of working the tables, is that always your style, or sometimes you're like, well, let's see what this person, what these people might fancy, or have you got, this is my set, this is my best close-up, this is what I know, kills it every time, and you hit each table like that? Yeah, actually, I'm... It's one of the things I get, not criticised for, but you get ums and ahs when you when I lecture my my close up set because I do I do exactly what you do I stick to one routine and I would say that my my eight to ten minute close up routine hasn't changed for about fifteen years. Um, things like the odd thing has gone in and it's come back out again um, because trying to replace a routine that you know is good just for the sake of doing new material, I find is really detrimental to the act in general. So I, I know that when I approach a table, first of all, every single trick I do is super strong. So if the waiters came over and put the food down and it was the hot food and it was time to leave, I know that even if they've seen, just say, Extreme Burn and Invisible Deck, they've had two really strong tricks. Um, it's, it's really funny because I worked with someone uh, once who's opening effect with David Williamson's Torn and Restored Transpo and um, so he, he did it for those that don't know you basically it, they take a card it looks like you get it wrong so you rip up the card and you put it on the table well it was at this point that the food came so their impression <laughs> their impression of this magician was they picked the card he couldn't find it. He got mad. He ripped up the card and then he left the table. <laughs> so it's it, that's one of the reasons why you have to really think about the magic you're doing. And at this point, I've got I've got an act now which is it's polished. I know people are going to like it, whether they're you know fourteen years old or whether they're ninety years old. It's a routine that plays, and and the only thing that I will adjust depending on the audience is the jokes. Uh, sometimes the act is a bit bluer, sometimes it's completely family friendly. Um, if I'm working with people of my own age, which is in the 30s, then I'll be a bit more cheeky chappy. You know, it's like if you're doing university balls, you don't, you, you've got to fit in with the kind of people you're with, I think. Was it around this time then that you moved down to London and, and what impact did that have on you? Uh, it had a great impact on me. Uh, well, the first impact was the crazy rental prices, uh, so that was a bit <laughs> difficult. Basically, I couldn't I couldn't have moved there without a, a few months' worth of help from my parents was the first thing. But the doors that it opened up was being closer to, like, Magic Circle magicians, you know. There's a really good high calibre of magicians in London that all group together, and I was lucky enough to, because I'd done all these competitions and things, I was getting to meet some of these awesome top pro magicians at conventions and things. So then when I moved into their neck of the woods, it was like I already had friends there. The other nice thing is it it was so easy to get a residency in London. Um, you know, at one point, I think I had like five residencies, uh, which which had me working seven days a week. So that was good. I mean, obviously, they, they don't pay as well as normal gigs. So I, I wanted normal gigs, but it meant that I could pay my rent eventually. Um, the only thing I would say is that some magicians, and I'm being really honest with you, because I think that's what people would want to know. Some magicians that had given me advice um, across the Internet when I was in Shropshire 
kind of decided not to uh, advise me any longer now that I was in London um, because I think it became clear that I I must have become competition to them which is crazy really because some of these people were top top pros and, and I was just starting my magical journey really at this point or the professional magical journey so they had no need to do that that I wasn't going to swoop in and take anyone's work um, mainly because I'm, I'm one of the worst people at marketing that you'll ever meet in your life. You mentioned um, having five residencies which, which is huge and I think a lot of certainly magicians that I know when they move down to London they're like this is the place where we can <laughs> now get residency. Getting my residency in Hull has been hard. I will come to London and get all the residencies. Um, what kind of places were you uh, working as resident magician then? Uh, one of the main ones was a place called Revolution Vodka Bars. Um, they're a massive chain. Um, I think it had helped that Revolution Vodka Bar were already on my CV. Um, so that was that was a nice gateway in. Um, I was doing there every Thursday night, and I think I did that for about three years. Um, so they really saw the impact that magic could have. Uh, then the more luxurious place was Cirque du Soir in Mayfair. I actually did that five nights a week, but it was starting at midnight until 3 a.m. Um, so that was, that was a busy one. And that's where I was working with Dynamo a lot, because me and him were both of their magicians. Uh, he always got more tips than I did, but that's not surprising. He is awesome. Um, another one, I worked at number one Leicester Square, Loft Lounge Restaurant, and that was lovely because it was just always celebs coming in and going out, so I had photos taken with people. They went on the website until I decided I looked so bad in the photos that I took them down. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not a celebrity like hunter. Uh, I know a lot of magicians are. They like to put them all over their website with quotes. I... I just don't do it. If I'm if I'm paid to be at a gig, I don't want to be seen needing to have my photo taken with a celebrity. I think it just makes magicians look needy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it it looks a bit weird, isn't it? And also, you you know, if you're the magician, you should be really interesting. And, yeah, and... you should be a celebrity. Yeah. You know, you you shouldn't be like look, going after the celebrities and insisting on photos and. I don't know. I think celebrities see through it. They they know that even if they said nothing to you, that photo is going on the website with a quote, even though they probably have never said anything. Yeah, it's all the wow, that's amazing ones. Then, oh God, yeah. How long were you? How long were you kind of down in London for then? And how long were you you working these residencies? And was there a point? Did you kind of ever feel I'd, I'd be happy doing these residencies for for the rest of my life, or did was there a point when it would kind of just you know, I can imagine, you know, midnight to 3am, a couple of nights a week is, is going to get a bit grating after a while. Yeah, it basically, the residency started taking their toll on me. Like, they really did. So I had Cirque du Soir in Mayfair that was, um, yeah, it was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, and that was, like I said, every single week um, from 12 till 3am. Uh, and then I would usually be doing a wedding on the Saturday and the Sunday. Um, you know, not all the time, obviously. I'm not, I'm not gonna start lying. I don't wanna become that magician. Um, but then I also had a residency that I did for Faye Presto, which was uh, an S&M restaurant. Stands for Sausage and Mash, <laughs> in case anyone was curious. Um, and that was every Thursday and Friday lunchtime. And then uh, on the Monday nights, that was the Loft Lounge restaurant. So it was a, it was a really, really packed week. 
it started to take its toll on my health. I was I was becoming drained. I realized that I couldn't perform at weddings or corporate functions as, as well as I could. So I was like getting hardly any sleep. Because especially with the sausage and mash restaurants, because that was they were like eleven till twelve just at lunchtime. So if you think I hadn't got back home until probably about five a.m. because I was getting the bus all the way back to West Norwood where I lived, so it was it, I just had to give them up. So but I I was doing I was doing that stretch of all of them for about one year, um, but Revolution Vodka I did for a year about three years and. I don't know how long I did SM for, probably only about six months, so it wasn't too bad. Um, but yeah, an eight-year stretch I was in London for. We mentioned the Magic Circle, and uh, I kind of wonder, what's your uh, overall impression on the Magic Circle, and what's some of the things that you've, you've got from it, apart from, of course, <laughs> Young Magician of the Year? Um, I absolutely love the Magic Circle. I'm really, really, really proud to be a member. Um, I think the building is very, very nice, but it's not as magical as it could be. You know, I've, I've been to the Magic Castle in Hollywood and they, they understand what makes a place look magical. Um, that's the only thing with the Magic Circle, but saying that it's got, you know, one of the world's best libraries. The museum is really, really fascinating. Um, the presidents have always been really good, supportive of me especially. Um, the people you meet there are just genuine people, you know. We've all got this wonderful interest in magic and it brings people together, you know. It's like a room full of people that automatically have one interest. You've always got something you can talk about. Um, also, you can just go into the club room on a Monday and meet some of the, your idols, you know, the celebrities that you've known growing up. You, you're seeing them there and then. And, um, yeah, I've made some really good friendships. The Magic Circle is an absolutely fantastic society um, it's, it's the world's premier magic society so i'm proud to be a member and you mentioned the magic castle um yeah. so have you been out uh, and performed there and kind of how many times have you been there i have only been once and i have not performed there i've been asked to perform there but it's just getting there basically um it's i'm going to be honest i'm i'm not good at saving money sounds like i should be rich having had all these residencies but it comes it comes in one hand and goes out the other it really does i haven't performed there but when i went there it was with the young magicians club which is the magic circle youth initiative um and i was one of the mentors that used to help out i think i helped out there for about six years straight once a month and um basically i got to chaperone the kids with a wonderful gentleman called Kevin Doig uh, and it was just us and then I think there was about 10 about 10 kids uh, and we just all had a good time in in LA and Las Vegas and it was good we got to meet like David Copperfield, Matt King, all those people. The superstars of proper superstars <laughs> of magic yeah absolutely. We mentioned kind of competitions at the beginning there I want to dive maybe back in let us tell us Get get your CV out. Let's have a look at it. Um, talk us through some or all of the awards that you've won because you've got more magic awards than anyone else. I do at the moment. I've won twenty four magic awards. Okay. Um, I, I bill myself occasionally as the most awarded magician in Britain. I hope that's true. Um, because it's on my publicity. <laughs> the thing is, I've never had any magicians query it. And I think that's because most of them win two or three awards in their lifetime. I've now won 24. 
people telling me I can't stop at 24, it has to be 25. But some of those are local competitions, uh, some of them are regional competitions. Um, for example, uh, the local societies around where I'm, I'm a member of the Wolverhampton Society now, and like the counties, ones around the counties, that all the winners go into one big competition and uh, basically they, they compete for the champion of champions. Well, I won that. That's why. So that's, that became my regional <laughs> award, like I said. And then you've got things like international awards, like the IBM. The IBM close-up, I've now won twice. I believe I was the first person to ever win it twice, but this controversy, they think there may be someone else who had a, their normal name and then had a stage name. Uh, so I need to look into that before I start claiming that. And then, of course, Young Magician of the Year. And then I've gone back to back to winning a few local awards, basically. Do you have a bit of advice for maybe first-time entrants? And also, it's interesting that you've kind of entered a few competitions before you obviously won mm -hmm. the, the Young Magician of the Year. So I wonder if you had advice for someone that's entering their first competition, then also it could be the same advice or different for someone that maybe wants, that has placed third or not placed, yeah. and they want to kind of take that to the next level. I'm sure they're seeing who's winning and kind of getting inspiration that way but I wonder if there's an, any other wisdom you could part on potential competition in the competitions yeah okay well obviously I have to be careful how much I say in case you come up against me in a competition <laughs> but no it's one of my favorite things to do is advise people on, on this because what I'd say is you if you ask a lot of magicians about competitions you're going to run into the ones that say competitions are a waste of time, they're stupid. You're going to get people that tell you competitions, um, they don't equal work, so awards don't equal work, which I kind of agree with, but I kind of disagree with. It makes your CV look amazing. It, you know, the only problem we've got with, with this is, if you look on every magician's website, they're an award-winning magician, because everyone has you know one it might be their local club's award for best magic with a feather duster you know it's like everyone has now won an award that's that's the problem um however winning really good awards and putting them on your cv does help you get work don't listen to the negative people that say competitions are pointless or useless these people are usually people that have never won a competition and as much as they're going to disagree with what I'm saying now, psychologically, there must be some bitterness going on there. Uh, you know, for them to have done a competition, maybe not won it, and then telling people competitions are pointless. I mean, it's two and two is four. It's really obvious what that means. Um, and then you'll have people that have never entered a competition who are really busy working and saying, well, you don't need competitions. Um, look at me. I've never won one. I'm so busy with all my work. That's fine. But... Look at competitions as a way of improving what you already do. Okay, people that win a competition, they've had to be better than between five and ten other people. This automatically makes your working set better because you've had to develop extra skills that it takes in order to win a competition. The top secret and the top tip I can give for winning a magic competition is to consider the criteria that you're being judged on. Um, a lot of people will go into a competition and just think, I'm going to do this act and I'm going to do it really well and I'm just going to make sure people are smiling, having fun, that surely will be enough to win. And, or they might go, my family have told me I'm the best magician they've ever seen, so I'm going to enter this competition. What you need to do is figure out the criteria. You have to be scoring 
in your head at least, you need to be scoring an 8 to 10 out of 10 on all of the things you're being judged on. If not, you haven't got a chance of winning the competition. So usually, for those that are really thinking about it, that would be appearance and smartness, uh, magical content, comedy value, entertainment value, originality, and yeah, overall magicalness. That's kind of it. There's just, there is so many categories and the reason you have to score so highly on all of them is you don't know what the criteria for the competition you're entering is going to be. So if you score in every criteria that could possibly be on their score sheet, uh, it's more likely you're, you're going to win. Any obstacles on the day or <coughs> kind of key moments that stick out for you is a, a bit of a challenge on the day. Yeah, one of the one of the worst ones was with Young Magician of the Year. Uh, so I turned up and I hadn't got my ninja rings, which are like two minutes of the routine. Now two minutes out of well, probably actually probably a bit less than two minutes, but two minutes out of an eight minute routine is quite a lot. So I, my dad had to go to Davenport's on the morning of the competition and say, I need linking rings. And obviously I hadn't sent him with any information about what type, right? Luckily, luckily, when he was asked, like, do you want big ones? Do you want magnetic ones, locking ones, three rings, eight rings, small ones? He goes, oh, I don't know. They're quite small. And the person behind, I can't, I don't even know who it was to this day, but the person in Devonport apparently said to my dad, who are they for? And they went, he said, oh, for Steve Della. And he goes, oh, it's ninja rings. And then he just, <laughs> he gave them a certain ninja ring. So that was a big challenge to overcome. But the other thing was in the act, uh, if anyone watches it back, there are two places where the act just goes completely wrong. There's a bit during the card manipulation where I literally just forget what the hell I'm doing. Like I don't, I can't, I know I'm, I'm in a competition, but I've become absolutely st struck with, with, I don't know whether it's fear, whether it's panic, but you will notice my face just changes and then I look like I don't know what I'm doing with the playing cards. So from that point up, out, I'm making up the card routine. Um, and then also, if you watch at the very end, I whip my hand out towards the box. And then before I come and do my big stance, as in, look how great I am. Um, and the box, it's after a card fountain. And then the end of the act is that the box is supposed to close by itself. Right, so what happens is I put the last cards in, I press a button, it's on a timer, time to the music, and a little string closes the lid. Well, before I do the show, I always put in a new battery for the motor to work. Well, it turned out this time I'd put in one of my flat batteries that I hadn't that I hadn't thrown in the bin. So what you have is you have no lid closure and you have me looking like a total fool pointing <laughs> to a box. Like all the cards have gone. That would have been the point to to point, should I say. And instead I'm now pointing at a box expecting this lid to close. I just turn back to stage and kind of go, <laughs> so, so that was uh, that was a bit annoying, but it, it's it's okay. Obviously, it didn't affect the result too much. It's time for gig of the week. Gig of the week. That's right. It is gig of the week, and unlike last week when we spoke to the barely methodical troupe, and then they were the gig of the week. This week's gig of the week is not Steve Dello, although I'm sure Steve Dello is out and about in Shropshire doing some fantastic gigs. There is a very, very exciting gig on in London this week. A good friend of ours, we met him in Edinburgh, he's a friend of Cain and Abel. And I'm going to pass you over to Ed Cain, who's going to tell you all about this week's gig of the week. Eddie Murphy, raw. 
It's not that. Raw. That's the one. The, the time. WWE Raw. No, it's not WWE Raw. It's not Eddie Murphy Raw. Le- read what's written before it. Frank Sinatra Raw. But he's dead. Oh, someone must be doing a Frank Sinatra show. Could it be our good friend Richard Shelton? It is our good friend Richard Shelton, the hardest working man in Edinburgh. He's up 10am every morning on the Royal Mile selling the show. And to my knowledge, he took Raw to Edinburgh this year and it's been picked up and it's doing a London run. Now, we're going to go on one of the days. I haven't told us which day yet, but we are going one day this week to watch We've got this tickets. show. We've got tickets? Maybe. To Richard Charlton Raw. To Richard Charlton Raw, but Frank Sinatra Raw. Kane, why should people go and watch Shelton Sinatra Raw? Just go because it's at Brasserie Zadell. Richard Shelton was in uh, Emmerdale. He was a bad guy. Killed some people. And then he left. He started doing a show about Frank Sinatra. But the interesting thing about Rich Ch- our good friend Richard Chowton is that he's the exact same body shape as Frank Sinatra. He's got the exact measurements as him, yeah. He's got his own he's got his suit and he. So it's a lovely story. Mm. It's a lovely story. Do you want to tell it or shall I tell it? You'll probably tell it better. I've had because I've had fewer <laughs> So the way this podcast works, although you listen to it on a Monday afternoon, is we normally record it on a Sunday, don't we? And uh, we've had a Do few... we? Why night is them? We record it at the... whenever we got the chance. We do, yeah. But we're recording it on a Sunday. And I'm leaning back now so you can finish it off. Okay, lean back, Kate. The lovely thing about Richard Shelton is he has the exact same measurements as Frank Sinatra. And someone was auctioning Frank Sinatra's suit and Richard I believe got in contact and said well look I I do this show about Sinatra I'd love the suit and the man sold it to him for a reduced price he could have made more money but he wanted it to go to someone that was going to wear the suit and keep the spirit of Sinatra living and do you want the spirit of Sinatra to live do you want a bit of Sinatra in your life get yourself down to watch Sinatra Raw this week. It's our gig of the week. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy, and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Am I right in thinking you've been out and done the four Fs at some point as well? Yes, yes, indeed. Um, it's funny because all this stuff happened while I was really, really young. So I was invited to four Fs for the first time when I was 15 years old. Um, I was getting, and I went out there, uh, my parents chaperoned me because I was quite young. Um, they didn't the second time because I was 16 the second time, but the first time they came with me. And um, it was fantastic experience. I was in my element because there was me, like all this stuff was happening to me. I was like doing IBM comps and, and then I was invited to 4F and I'd heard about 4Fs. So I thought, oh my God, I'm 15 years old. I must be the youngest person who's ever been invited. So there was me, my head held high, thinking this is brilliant, this will go on the CV as well. Um, and when I get there, I'm chatting to Obi O'Brien, who's the, who's the gentleman in charge, and he goes, oh no, you're, you're not the youngest. I was like, what, I'm, I'm 15, who was the youngest? He says, Lee Asher and Joshua Jay were both invited when they were 14 years old so i've missed it by a year yeah months maybe. yeah months yeah maybe so i was gutted about that but i tell you what the four f's and the fact i was invited so young it it's fantastic it was nice to be in a room where i was the worst magician not to sound arrogant but you know 
because I'd won awards, I used to think I was pretty good. Well, when you go to four Fs, I'm not pretty good. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely one of the worst people there. Um, and so <clears throat> it was a real eye-opener. But I got to meet all my heroes. You know, I, I got to meet people like Boris Wilde, David Regal. I became friends with Rick Merrill, Jason Latimer. It was just uh, Gene Anderson, people like that. It was just a who's who of of the magic world and yeah it's memories i'll never forget i still get invited every year um i but i've only been twice so i should i will go again and being around people of, of that elk what is some of the things that you pick up from them because i'm sure there's some people that you, you're just struck by maybe their marketing mm-hmm. how business savvy they are how good they are with cards what what are some of the lessons i suppose that, that you've picked up from certain people and this doesn't just have to be at the 4s this yeah. can be at any other sort of convention or whatever i wonder kind of who who else and we mentioned jeff ray of course who yeah. else i wonder on this journey we've been on has had a particular impact on you um well yeah we'll say it again jeff ray definitely uh colin rose Absolutely love. Colin's, um, I think it's called Fantasy and Flame Act. I think that's what it's called. Just absolutely superb. It was after seeing that, when I was about 15 or 16, that I said to my parents, I want to I wanna do a fire act. And um, I, I, I got in a few bits and I, I, burnt, I burnt a hole in, in their bed sheets with fire. So so that act came to an end and I wasn't allowed to do it anymore. So so that was cool. It was inspiration for a little bit whilst it lasted. But the my main inspiration um, is a guy called Richard Pinner. Um, first of all, he was one of the magicians that never closed the door on me. Uh, he's always been there with amazing advice. And if there was someone I ever wanted to emulate, uh, style, presentation, originality-wise, it would definitely be Richard Pinner. Because when he is on stage doing a, doing an act, um, whether it's original or just his original take on a classic, it's done to absolute perfection. Um, and that, after seeing him do that, and especially after seeing him uh, doing his act at the IBM and places like that, I know that he, he thinks about absolutely every little detail. You know, he, he, he knows what colour of tablecloth he needs to go with these props. He stands tall on stage. He's got a commanding presence. He's just he's just one of... He's kind of like an idol to me, I'd say. It's weird saying that because he's a friend now, but, um, yeah, he's he's someone I still look up to to this day. I kind of want to talk um, a little bit about a, a show that I can't pronounce, but I know that you <laughs> did for the public and might be coming back soon. Phantasmagoria? Am I there? You are there, yes. Yeah, Phantasmagoria. Um, basically, it was originally a show set up and produced by myself and a gentleman, a good friend of mine called Stephen Baker. Uh, he's also a Magic Circle member uh, and, a, and a good magician too, um, although that's not his full-time uh, living. But yeah, he's, he's very passionate about it. So he, he had the idea that we're going to do a stage show and it's kind of going to become a Steve Della and Friends show. Okay, So um, basically it was, it was me doing like the first 10 minutes, then I would have an act, then I would do another 10 minutes, then we'd have me, then a break, then I'd do say 20 minutes, and then we'd have an act, and then I would do like the grand finale. Well, depending, if, if the act we had in was really, really good, then they would end the show. You know, I was never precious about that. But yeah, it was produced by Stephen Baker, and he even made a guest appearance in one of the shows. Um, but it was absolutely fantastic. We, we managed to 
do that once a month for, I think it was close to a year we did it, but then we copied the show and did it in Brighton as well. So it was going on in London and Brighton at one point. Um, but some of the, some of the uh, like, stars that we had on were Faye Presto, uh, we had Richard Pinner, of course, had to get him, uh, John Archer, uh, Lee Warren, uh, yes, Stephen Baker, and, oh, I can't, it escapes me, there was a few more, sorry if I forgot to mention you, but but these were just, just brilliant people, and, and seeing them perform their perfect magic, it just made the show work really, really well. When we first moved to London, we ran a, a monthly magic night for, for a while, um, and so I can bringing it all back to me, <laughs> thinking about the stresses and tra- trauma of it all. <laughs> Do you think there's still an appetite, certainly in London, but I suppose in all over the UK, for a regular monthly sort of magic night, bearing in mind that the majority of performers on there will not be people that the general public, I suppose, have heard of. Um, but do you think there is still an appetite for that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100% there is. It's just, it's you just need someone who's going to take the risk to do it, really. I think the, the risk-free way to do it is to get a bunch of magic friends together and say, look, we're going to hire a venue, we're going to do two shows, we're going we're gonna to see if we can get the people from the first one back to the second one. And then they all just do 20 minutes each of material. That way, you know, you split the cost of the haul. If it fails, you don't lose too much money. If you're doing it by yourself and it fails and it's a big haul or a big venue, then you could lose hundreds and hundreds of pounds. However, there is clearly an appetite for it. If you look at um, Smoke and Mirrors Magic Bar in in Bristol run by Mark Bennett, I've performed there and he manages to pack that place out every single week. I mean, the theatre is always a sellout. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's obviously got a really good marketing strategy, but also he he does hire very good magicians. Himself, I watching him do his 45-minute act, I was blown away. It was polished, it was cheeky, it was original, it was magical. Uh, it was it was just super, super good. So if, if he can get people to come every single week to a magic show, then a monthly show should be no problem. we just got to find a group of people willing to take the risk. You mentioned Smoke and Mirrors. How did you find uh, going down there performing? Obviously, I don't think Illusions is running at the minute. It's not now. But um, how did you find Illusions and, and Smoke and Mirrors? Fantastic. Yeah, I tell you what, Smoke and Mirrors is, is so well run. It's like clockwork. The theatre is tiny, but... It's perfect. It's exactly what you want if you're a cabaret magician. You couldn't be an illusionist on their stage, um, but for a cabaret magician, if you're lucky enough to get invited to do it, it's absolutely superb. Um, it's it's right in the centre of Bristol, so you can turn it into a nice night out, you can turn it into a holiday. Um, yeah, I've been tempted to go back with my partner just to go and see a show, you know, because it looked like the audience were having such a good time. And I could I could tell that from the stage, even though they were blacked out and you couldn't see them. It, there was always laughter, there was people enjoying it. There was no heckles either, which from a young crowd seemed quite of, kind of impressive. It's like they were really, really into let's see what the magicians can do. And it, I, I actually presented us a mind reader that night, so it was a bit different, but it was good. Yeah, we've done it once, and I, I love the, the intimacy mm. in that in that room. You come out and you're virtually standing on people's tables, aren't you, really? Yeah. And it's such a hot, fun room, and people from Bristol are nice and fun anyway. I they think. are. I want to talk a little bit about something we haven't touched on, which is you creating magical effects mm. and... and dealing them. Was that kind of something you always wanted to do or did you just find that you were creating and creating and thought, 
actually, maybe I should sell some of these or see if they'll sell. How did that all, all start for you and what makes you, um, what inspires you to do that? I'm now inspired by money uh, <laughs> more than that. No, I'm not really. Um, no, it, it came about because I started creating tricks for my own personal use. Um, I showed them to people. They were going, oh, that's really good. Do you mind if I do it? And I was saying, yeah, go ahead, do it. You know, these were people like in the local magic clubs or the magic circles. And then people just said, you should you should sell them. Um, and I hadn't really thought about it. And I snoozed on it a bit. And then a trick that I had created then was released by someone else. Not, I'm not saying they saw me do it or had seen it ever done by me. But it was just like, ah, oh, so to keep things so that people know it's yours, you have to release them. Kind of a shame. It means that if I did something in a stage show and someone saw it and I didn't release it, if they wanted to do it, they would take it and they might possibly release it. Or of course, people have the same ideas as you. You know, it's just great minds think alike kind of scenario. Basically, whoever gets it to market first is gonna be the person whose trick it is. So that happened to me with a few things and then I decided to release stuff. I think the first thing I released was the PK Sharpie, which was a pen that fell off a table. I released that with Banachek. Um, I wish I had a better description, but it, it, it just is a pen that falls off a table. Um, they sold really well, but we did have some manufacturing issues. Um, a lot of them uh, had to be replaced because they leaked, and unfortunately I got a lot of complaints about that. Obviously it was all put right, people had replacement pens or they had their money back, um, but that just showed me that you know, you can't rush things, you've got to take your time with it. Uh, it was a bit of a learning curve. Uh, next one, I sold a thing, I, you know the long card gag, where it's like, oh, is it the three of hearts? No, it was the ten. Oh, it keeps going until it's got ten pips. So I then thought, I know, we'll stick that on an appearing pole. That'll be a good trick, good for my close-up set. Um, but basically, I had that idea, and then I, I, I spoke to Wayne Rogers, uh, who's sadly no longer with us, and he said... Wow, I love that idea. I'd like to buy it. So I sold that idea to him. I sold it for half money and half appearing items. So I've got a shed full of appearing items that I've never used in my life. I've got two, if anyone wants them, I've got two ladders, got several long carton of poles. I think I've got about 10 McDonald's straws. I even had some KFC straws made. I don't think anyone's ever had those. Yeah, so I've got appearing shovels. God knows what I wanted all this for. I think it was just so I could tell people I had it, but that was that. And then, um, oh, what else have I released? I then got with Liam Montier, and um, he's a fabulous friend of mine. In fact, I uh, used to live with him for a little bit. Uh, him and his partner and me and my partner shared a three-bedroom house. Yeah, four of us, nice and cosy. But me and Liam got together, and we released a few tricks. So we released uh, Live Strong Revelation, which was the Live Strong bands with a revelation. And for every one we sold, we made a uh, donation to the charity, which we thought was pretty cool. Um, and then Grab a Gift, which sold out. And good news for anyone wanting Grab a Gift is we're re-releasing it. Uh, we're, we're actually talking this Wednesday about... Alakazam bought a few things off me. Uh, they bought Will to Read, uh, and they bought All About Eve. Then Alakazam have also bought another one, which is not yet released, which is a stage effect. Based on a tossed out deck, but it's not a tossed out deck. That's all I can say at the moment. But it's it's going to be good. I'm not sure when it's being released, but they do have it. Hurring with anticipation. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned Alakazam quite a few times there. Is are they kind of your you go to company that you would prefer to work with? And 
Uh, obviously, I'm sure you're not going to be turning arms <laughs> down. But, you know, is there anything about them that, that makes you enjoy working with them more? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, Peter Nardi is just a top bloke absolute top quality bloke um and so are all his his amazing staff so you've got andy smith fantastic god he knows his stuff uh, and then dave loosely who's one of my absolute best friends in the whole world we've been friends for many 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 years and working with them they're just such a great team they've got all the equipment now which makes it totally professional um, they can do all the editing in-house um, they we can take days to film stuff if it really need to um, and also, they pay well. I'm, I'm going to be honest, they, they've paid better than any offers I've ever had from any other company. Um, so, yeah, just everything's completed to a really high standard. Uh, they don't cut any corners, the DVDs are good, or the instant download's good, the quality of the props is fantastic. And the other thing is, they took my advice all the way. Whereas with other companies that have released effects of mine, they, they will sometimes change it beyond recognition and it loses its integrity it loses the bits i put in and then it makes you wonder why your name's even on it so but alakazam they are totally led by you they make suggestions um but they're always good suggestions so you're happy to go with it i'd, I'd, I'd work with them a lot more in the future we've talked a lot about the past so let's go forward to the future what's your kind of sort of current day-to-day -day look like i suppose we're obviously not on five residencies at the minute and what are some of your aspirations for the future phantasmagoria is coming back which is very exciting but this time it's different okay very very different instead of being having guest acts it's now two performers we're going under one magician that's the other guy who shall still remain nameless um, and then the second guy is me who's the mentalist magic uh has taken i'm still doing loads of close-up magic but on my stage show, it's almost exclusively mentalism now. And it certainly will be for Phantasmagoria. Um, so I'm making a transition because my close-up magic, even though I'm still you know, a good performer when I go out and work for people, it doesn't excite me anymore. Um, whereas I'm transitioning into becoming a mentalist. I mean, my last two releases with Alakazam were both mental mentalism things, and my new one that's coming out is a mentalism thing. And my day-to-day, -day, if I'm not working on the structure for Fantas or in a business meeting with he who shall not be named yet, um, I'm writing a book at the moment. Um, it's a book on purely mentalism. It's mentalism creations that I've been creating for over 10 years. The thing is, I've always loved mentalism. Um, I've got many mentalism idols, people like Darren Brown, obviously, uh, Mark Spellman, Luke Jermay, they're, they're my top three. So I want to become a mentalist because it still excites me. So I'm writing this book and it's all tested material, it all works in the real world. The only thing that doesn't excite me about mentalism is the fact that all mentalists are going down this propless route. They want to do magic with, uh, mentalism, sorry, with absolutely no props. Uh, that I just can't do. I don't, A, I think there's too much process. I know people are gonna listen to this going, I know loads of routines where there's no process. Fine, but even a little bit of process puts me off. Um, plus, I just don't have the brain for it. I don't have the brain to remember stuff. I can't do progressive anagrams. Um, 
give me a peak wallet any day, basically. Um, but saying that, there's some lovely little routines in my book, even though I say so myself, but most of them involve props. You're, you're gonna need something in order to do. So if you buy it, you'll either be making stuff or you'll need to buy things in order to do it. But yeah, my day-to-day -day is that, and then just watching Netflix. Part of the fun, actually, when you get a magic book and you need to go and make stuff, because yeah. we've got, obviously, and huge library that we've inherited off our, our granddad yeah and if you look at the like much older magic books it is kind of a bit like watching blue peter because it's like go around the house and get some <laughs> sticky glue and oh, some googly eyes that's so and, true and you can do this miracle what is it then that excites you more about mentalism than magic at the moment creating the patter and the routining mental most mentalists i that i watch or or that they show me stuff, are really dreadful. Like, 90% of mentalists think they're the bee's knees. They almost believe they can do this psychological stuff. And they're, they're convincing themselves that it's real and it's kind of not. And I see that a little bit too much um, from mentalists. So I want to be a mentalist that in five minutes does five routines. I don't want to be a mentalist that, you know, does one routine in 10 minutes. I think long drawn out mentalism is just super boring. I know others will disagree. That's fine. It's whatever works for you. Um, you know, the only people, I've mentioned the three people before that I think can do a long routine and that's that's Darren Brown, Mark Spellman, Luke Jamey. They're, they're my top ones. But then people that I think are really punchy and edgy and really cool are people like Kennedy. Uh, his mentalism is absolutely fantastic. And then people like Richard Ostlin, Banachek and those are also very, very, very good. Um, but I want mine to just be more rounded and, and be a routine but be punchy with it, not kind of droning on probably like I am now. Is it possible to do mentalism without having a goatee beard? I don't think it is. I think you have to have a beard and you have to have tattoos if you're going to be a mentalist. Otherwise, give up, give up now. And do you think the public kind of want to believe in mentalism more than... Yes, they 100% do. Now, this is, this is what I touched on with mentalists kind of believing their own crap, is because they... They, they are going out convincing the public, mainly thanks to Darren Brown, um, that they're using psychological tools and that they're looking at the way people move and like, oh, you moved your elbow, your nan must be called Grace or whatever, you know. It's like people are doing that and they're trying to make their audience believe that they're doing it. Now, to get away from, because the audience do believe people are reading their mind, to get away from being a mind reader, people call themselves a mentalist. And then they use the Darren Brown thing, I'm using all of these skills to create the illusion. Then they're still going out and saying, I'm doing this psychology, or I'm body reading, or I'm listening to the pitch in your voice, or I'm lie detecting. You're still going out and lying. The lie isn't less because it's those. It's no less than saying, I'm actually reading your mind. You're just lying in a different way and you're doing it to make yourself feel better. You're still deceiving the public. Obviously, we do it for entertainment, so we're not like psychics that are doing it for bad things. It's just something I wish more mentalists were aware of. Don't call yourself a mentalist instead of a mind reader just because it makes you feel better about it. And do you kind of feel the need to do any sort of pre-conditioning or post-conditioning with the audience to kind of say although this might feel like I have supernatural abilities I don't or do you kind of just leave it for them to make their own mind up? I leave it for them to make their own mind up 100% but I will 
if someone says to me, are you really reading my mind? I will become the person that goes, no, I'm using a totally different set of skills in order to know what you're thinking. And often I'll say, my background's as a magician, you know, something like that. I hate the idea of saying to people, no, I, I knew all this because, you know, I was, I was reading it. I just, I, I love it as a premise and I do present a lot of my mentalism in that way, but I need people to know that it is purely for entertainment value only. You know, I can't read minds. I don't, though, have a problem with people saying they're mind readers. I don't, because like Luke Jamay, his show is Luke Jamay Mind Reader. And he doesn't anymore, as far as I'm aware, and what I've seen, come on and say I'm doing all this psychological stuff. He comes off and goes, I'm a mind reader. And I really admire that, because he's not fluffing around it. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cade and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.